And I am so happy to be here representing the ladies of 20 Feet from Stardom. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. Cause his eye is on the sparrow. And I know watches me. That singer Darlene Love at the 2014 Academy Awards. She was one of several backup singers featured in the film 20 Feet from Stardom, which had just won the Academy Award for Best Documentary. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. 20 Feet from Stardom is Morgan Neville's chronicle of rock and roll's backup singers from the 1950s to the present. Darlene Love, Judith Hill, Mary Clayton, Lisa Fisher. These are just a few of the film's astounding singers that few of us know by name. But they have graced the recordings and shared the stage with some of rock's icons like Sting, Mick Jagger, and Stevie Wonder all of whom appear in 20 Feet from Stardom to share their insights about the voices that back them. Since its premiere at Sundance in 2013, 20 Feet from Stardom has wowed audiences and critics alike. Aside from winning multiple awards, the film was also selected for Film Forward, an initiative of the Sundance Institute in collaboration with the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities. The program seeks to encourage cultural dialogue through film. Given Morgan Neville's previous films like Pearl Jam 20 and Johnny Cash's America, it makes sense that the director would be intrigued by backup singers and see the compelling story they had to tell. Neville has spent his career creating award-winning documentary films about cultural figures and subjects with a frequent focus on music. But it was 20 Feet from Stardom that earned Morgan Neville his first Academy Award. Here's Morgan. It was really an out-of-body experience, uh, which was a good thing. You know, you, you don't know, of course, if you're going to win, and then you don't know if you do win how you're going to feel. But it all was kind of slow motion. Which was good because I got to savor the moment and my mind didn't go blank in front of a billion people. So that was good. Did you know Darlene would sing? I did. I mean, that was kind of the plan was I really wanted Darlene to have a moment. Mm -hmm. But of course, you're not supposed to bring her on stage and you're not supposed to have more than one person speak and you're only supposed to have 45 seconds. And we just went for it. And it worked out great. Oh, God, she brought the house down. She did. Yeah, no, it was incredible. And the thing was, when she hit that first note, you're in this huge auditorium, and I could hear her voice reverberating off the back wall. I mean, she has such a loud voice. <laughs> they could have cut the microphone. It wouldn't have mattered. It's amazing. Where did the idea of a film on backup singers come from? Uh, it came from my producer, uh, Gil Friesen, who I talked about at the, uh, at the Oscars. He had been an exec at A&M Records, and he had been in the industry for decades. And he just had a hunch that backup singers were interesting. When I met him, he said, you know, I think there might be an interesting documentary about backup singers. 
And I asked him what he thought the story was and what he thought the who were the characters. And he said, uh, I have no idea. You have to figure that out, which was kind of a great challenge. And we spent three months researching it before we ever decided to make the documentary. It's such a big subject, and you clearly had many, many choices to make. So what was your entry point? Well, the thing was, there was no story. I had to find the story. And there were no films or books or articles or websites or anything about backup singers. And the only thing I could do was meet the singers. And so I did initially about 50 oral histories with backup singers. And then I kind of stood back and looked at it and said, well, what's the story that emerges from all of this? And to me, it was the story we tell, which is really the revolution that happens with these African-American voices coming out of the churches and into the studios and onto vinyl in the 60s and the various iterations of that sound over different generations. But that's not to say there aren't 10 other interesting documentaries I could have made. You know, I interviewed some of those white 50s singers and I interviewed Nashville singers and Beyonce singers and James Brown singers and all kinds of different singers just to really feel what the world was about. But that was the story I settled on. How did you choose which backup singers to focus on? Because even in that world that you talk about, the world of African-American women singers and what they brought to basically white pop and, and rock and roll, that's still a pretty formidable group. It is. And, you know, hands down, the most difficult thing about making the film was cutting stuff out because I met so many incredible people who aren't in the film. And yeah, I had a very strict kind of criteria for who I wanted to cast in the film. I mean, somebody like Darlene, the moment I met her, I said, I, I think actually as soon as we finished our interview with Darlene the first time, uh, I turned to Gil, the producer, and said, well, we can always make a Darlene Love documentary. <laughs> you know, you really could. Because her story has all of the ups and the downs and everything. And she was a great entry point because she was a pioneer. And I had the idea that I wanted to have a group of characters whose experiences echo one another, but come from slightly different generations so that when you put them together, you get a sense of the passing of time and the sweep of pop music history, who made different decisions in their career, yet all who were great singers, great characters, who intersected with great songs. <laughs> you know, that's a lot of boxes to check to get the right balance of characters. And there were some amazing characters I spent a lot of time with who were either too similar or too dissimilar to the characters we had in there. And that just took months of editing to kind of get the balance right. Did you have any preconceived notions about these backup singers who were 20 feet from stardom before you began the process? Yeah, I mean, I think I had the same preconceived notions most people had about backup singers, which is they're maybe not as good as the lead singer, so that's why they're in the background, or they don't have a lot of character to their voice or character to the personality, and that's why they're in the backup world. And I was wrong on all those accounts, you know, happily so. Well, I actually thought Sting had the best thing to say about it when he basically said so much of it is luck. I mean, it is luck. I mean, it's a number of things. I mean, I think one of the takeaways from the film is that talent is way down the list because it's undeniable these singers are incredibly talented. But you have to look at things like luck, ambition, timing, having the right song, having the right producer, these things that are beyond most people's control. But the other thing, as I've come to, to think about it, is that I think ambition is actually maybe number one on the list. These singers don't have what I call the Madonna gene, you know, that, that willingness to crawl over broken glass to be famous. And they're also naturally talented, and they all fell into the music industry because they were so good that they never had to be ambitious about their talent. 
And I feel like when it came time for them to go solo and they had to flex that ambition muscle, they didn't know how because that's so much of what being a star is about is wanting to put up with a mountain of crap just to be able to to be a star. And for people like Lisa Fisher in her film, who's an incredible singer and who had it all, had the whole package, had the hit, had the Grammy, she looked around and said, I'm not singing, that this isn't about singing, this is about everything else, and then I occasionally get to sing, to be a star. And for me, what makes me happy truly is singing. And she made the decision to go back to the backup world, which most people wouldn't make. And certainly in our society, that seems counterintuitive where everybody wants to be famous. So we tell ourselves. But to me, it's the healthiest decision she could have made. We talked briefly about Darlene Love. And her story is in some ways, I think, the most tragic one because her voice was literally appropriated by Phil Spector. Yeah, so I've said that the difference often between a lead singer and a backup singer is a hit. And if Mary Clayton, for instance, who's in her film, had had a big hit, then she might be Chaka Khan or Patti LaBelle. But she never did. Darlene, she actually had a hit. She was kind of a session singer for Phil Spector, who was the biggest record producer in the early 60s. And at the time, he would just put whoever's voice on whatever record he was doing. And she most famously sang the lead on He's a Rebel by the Crystals, yet... It's not the crystals, it's Darlene Love singing. So she had a hit, it just wasn't under her name. And then that repeated itself many times with Phil where she was singing on hit records, yet nobody knew who she was. And her journey, her whole life, she said, is about reclaiming her name. And the irony of the whole thing is that her real name is Darlene Wright. Phil Spector gave her the name Darlene Love. And the idea that Phil Spector gave her this name Love, which so embodies her and so doesn't embody Phil, it's just such an irony. But she finally has done it. We talk about it in the film, but even beyond the film, what's happened since the film came out for her and the other singers, has been the most rewarding thing of all because, you know, we made this film to shine a light on these people and it worked, you know, which you never know was going to happen. But just seeing the love and appreciation coming their way and the joy and happiness they feel is the greatest reward I could have had on this film. You begin the film by looking at white girls who were backup singers, who were good singers, but as Stevie Wonder said in your film, they read the notes off the page. And as rock started churning up, suddenly producers wanted something else. Talk about how the backup singers whom you've spoken to provided that and where that came from. Sure. So in in some way, there was something going on at the same time, not just in the backup world, but certainly in the recording industry. And as you pointed out, these singers who were white, for the most part, they called them the readers because they read everything off the page, were part of how the whole recording studio system worked, which is it was all union dates. They were all three-hour sessions. They would do four songs in three hours. Nobody ever played a note that was not written down on the page. And if you did, you got paid an extra fee or you refused to do it. You know, it was really tightly circumscribed. But the thing was, in the 60s, you started to have this new music that didn't want to be so circumscribed, you know, that wanted to be freer. And you started having producers that wanted something more spontaneous than these 
you know, old session guys doing everything and these session singers who are all brilliant musicians, but just in a very different way, not in a free way. And I think that's why these singers, when they would come in and these producers like Herb Alpert and Lou Adler and Jerry Wexler and all these kind of legendary rock producers would say to them, we don't have a part here, just make up something. And they would do it. And that's something the previous generation of singers never would do. And they didn't care if it was on the page or not. Half of them couldn't even read, even though they pretended to read because they had such incredible ears they could get away with it. But, you know, that was really hand in hand with the revolution and what was happening in music at the time. And that just kept tracking as the music became freer and freer into the later 60s when you get the Stones and Zeppelin and Cocker and all of that. These singers were right there with them. You can't imagine for a second that those white session singers of the late 50s would be singing with Led Zeppelin. Or Mick Jagger. For that or Mick Jagger. You know. Tell us the story about Mary Clayton and Gimme Shelter. Gimme Shelter is probably the most famous backup singing performance of all time. Yet, you don't think of it that way. I didn't. You know, it's a song we've all heard many, many times. And I'd stumbled across an isolated vocal track of Mary's part singing Rape, Murder, It's Just a Shot Away, which I could never quite understand on the recording. It's just spine-tingling to hear it. And then I played it for Mary, and she told me the story of how the song came to be recorded, which was she was pregnant at the time. She was home, and she got a call in the middle of the night from uh, an arranger, Jack Nietzsche, and producer who worked with the Stones, who said, you better get down here. And she didn't know what it was. She didn't know who they were. But he said, you won't regret it. And I think they paid her triple scale or something. And so she went down there. They sent a car for her. She showed up in the studio in the middle of the night with curlers and a robe and sang the song and just blew it away. It's funny because she said she sang it so hard because she just wanted to get back to bed. (laughs) So (laughs) it's just not quite what you think when you hear it, but it's undeniably powerful. And that's the thing is that there's just a power to these voices that is, I mean, they'll all say heaven sent. You know, they've all started singing since they were kids in choirs. It's just being able to actually pay attention to these voices that are so good and so connected to our popular culture, that they're all right there, right under the surface. And for me, it was just a matter of retuning my ear and my mind and my eye to suddenly notice them. And suddenly I noticed them everywhere. In songs I'd heard hundreds of times, I suddenly realized the whole song was based on a big refrain or a hook that the backup singers were singing. was kind of a great way for me to flip a switch and hear all this music anew. Mary Clayton is so instructive and give me shelter for a couple of reasons. And the first is she's called out of bed in the middle of the night and handed music that she had never seen before. And that's a very dramatic version of what all these women do all the time, which is walk into studios, they're handed music, and they're off to the races, which is extraordinary to begin with. 
Well, it's part of their facility, which is part of why they're so great, which is they have to be perfect on the first take and the 50th take, and lead singers can mess up all day. They would tell me stories. Often they'd be doing three sessions a day, even four sessions a day. And in the morning you're singing with Buck Owens, and at night you're singing with Frank Sinatra, and the next day you're singing with Frank Zappa, and the next, you know, you've got to be able to do anything. And that ability is incredible. I mean, so many times as I've come to know all these women and spend lots of time with them you know even even out on the red carpet at the oscars the other day they started singing songs because it's what they do and they were throwing out different songs and they probably sang six different songs as they were ambling around they'd never practiced any of those they all just magically find their harmonies almost instantaneously and that's something that i just marvel at they really don't have to work at it because they've worked at it their whole lives but it's so natural to them that they don't need a lot of warm-up. I've seen them go from zero to 60 in no time. The other reason why Give Me Shelter is instructive is that, all right, Mary got paid maybe triple the scale, but Give Me Shelter has racked in a lot of money. And these singers are working on songs that make a lot of people very, very rich, but not them. It's true. You know, and some singers have done better than others. I mean, they are union members, and ostensibly they should get royalties for all these things. Darlene Love ended up suing Phil Spector because he didn't pay her royalties for decades, and she ended up winning. But it's hard for a isolated singer to go after a record company or a producer that's not paying royalties, and it doesn't happen very often. You know, Mary sang on a lot of big, big hit songs, and so she's actually done okay you know, not rich, but done okay. I mean, she told me that the Joe Cocker song, Feeling All Right, she sang on it. It became the theme song for Bank of America this year. And she said she got a really nice royalty check that helped her live this year. So that's good to hear that there's some karmic good happening in the music industry at that level. But I'd say that's the exception. You know, you've got to sing on big hit songs to have any hope of that. For the most part, they don't make money. And and as the music industry's changed too, you know, nobody makes money in any big way off of record sales anymore. You make money off of touring. So whereas the backup singing world used to be half in the studio and half on the road, I'd say it's now 90 to 95% touring. That's where the money is. And it's tough. And being a touring professional musician is a really, a much more difficult life than being a first or second call session singer. Well, indeed, I was also struck in live performances by the dancing and the raw sexuality that oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes, backup singing demanded and demands in addition to musical chops. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of an occupational hazard that if you're a really good singer, they're going to ask you to dance. <laughs> and I know a lot of the backup singers just say, oh, God, you know, yeah, I had to learn how to do it. I mean, Lisa Fisher talks about it in our film. But it's not something that gravitate towards. I mean, one of them told me a story about reading a review of the concert they had done the night before, some big concert, and the reviewer referred to them as the dancers on stage. And so I think things like that irk them quite a bit, but they get it. Part of their job as a live singer is to be an extension of the artist, and whether it's adding sexuality or energy or what have you to the performance, that's part of the job description. It's not just about the vocals. You also speak with some of the front guys like Stevie Wonder, Sting, Bruce Springsteen, Mick Jagger. Why did you choose them? And I'm really curious about how they responded 
to your ask to be involved in this project? Well, I chose them because all of them had a personal connection to one of our main characters. So that was important to me. So they weren't just speaking abstractly about backup singing. They were talking about individuals they knew and loved and had worked with and understood. And that was important because nobody knows what the backup singers do more than the lead singer does. That was my rationale for it. And asking them, I mean, it's never easy to get all those people into your documentary, but I think they all understood the value of it and what we were trying to do. Though almost every one of them, when we sat down to do the interview, said, I don't know how much I have to say about backup singing. And inevitably, they all had a ton to say about backup singing. It's just something they'd never thought about, which was something that came up over and over, which is nobody ever thought about it. But when you do think about it, you realize, oh, yeah, of course, I've been working with singers for decades, and I know these songs and these stories. And and that was fun because none of them had ever talked about it before, which is always nice. You know, they've all been interviewed endlessly, but to talk about something fresh I think was also good and meaningful for them. It was something they cared about and people they cared about. You've made a great many documentaries, always about culture, often about music. And you use music in your work in film to tell the story. Music isn't just wallpaper for you. How did you get on to that? Did you just know that's what you wanted to do when you started making films? Or did you learn that that was a good way in? You know, I'm a a culture person. You know, I started out at the beginning of my career as a journalist, and I kind of spent a few years in that world. But what I really always gravitated towards was culture. So you name it. I mean, music, certainly, and I've played music my whole life. I'm a music geek through and through. But film, I'm a film geek, architecture, literature, language. I mean, these are the things that excite me. And I've kind of been able to make a career telling these kinds of stories, you know, and I think it's been my big goal in life to champion the idea that culture matters. And often in the documentary world, or in a lot of worlds, even the world at large, culture is seen as something that's expendable. You can cut arts programming. You can cut funding for arts in schools. To me, that's wrong. Uh, that culture plays such an important part of who we are, how we connect to one another, how we understand where we came from and where we're going. It's just not expendable. And that's why seeing our film recognized this past week, I mean, to me, it's kind of a, it's an award for culture. You know, that, yes, we can celebrate our culture and it means something. And I like that. It's, it's kind of my life's mission in my films. And just in regards to the music part of it, that I feel that the music has to help tell the story. I mean, every song in our film is either about character or story. Because I see music misused all the time and it drives me crazy. So I feel like when you can get your story to work with the music and the music's advancing the story and the character and the character's advancing the music and the appreciation thereof, that that's when it really is firing on all cylinders. And that's what I'm always trying to do. As I said, you're a very successful documentarian with a list of credits anyone would be proud to have. But this film really seems to have taken on a life of its own. It was first introduced at the Sundance Film Festival in 2013. Yeah, we're the opening night film at Sundance. And the response was immediate, and it was wonderful. Yeah, it was interesting because we had never shown the film to an audience before. You're kidding. No, and nor had I shown the film to the singers. So I had to convince them to um, come to Sundance. And then we all show up at the premiere, and it's a huge 1,200 people in the theater. 
they watch the film for the first time and I'm just overwhelmed on any number of levels. And at the end of the film, we get five standing ovations. I mean, it was just incredible. You know, and it was like a night that changed all of our lives. It was just a film that from that moment to this moment never stopped surprising me, just how it's attracted audiences, but how people relate to it. And I've had a chance to think a lot about that. You know, it's a film that connects to people on a level way beyond music. And that's great because it connects to me on a level way beyond music. And what do you think that level is? I mean, I'll tell you a story that the moment that crystallized it for me, which was early on, we had taken the film to some film festivals. And I was with Mary, and we went to the uh, Minneapolis Film Festival. And we screened the film, and we got up there to talk afterwards. And a guy stood up and said, I just want to say that I'm middle manager at a software company here, and I've been working there for 25 years. I'm proud of the work we do. I'm proud of the product. I'm proud of the team I work with. And I don't get all the money in the world or all the credit in the world, but I realized that today I'm a backup singer and that we're all backup singers. And the whole crowd applauded. And that was it. That was it. It's just that most of us aren't rock stars. You know, most of us work collaboratively. Most of us feel we don't get all the love or attention or money in the world. And that it comes down to us finding our pride and our love and our success on our own terms and not how society tells us we should. And that's a lesson I got from these ladies. This was the big lesson from these people is that as they were telling me these stories and I just kept feeling disappointed and bitter for them that how could somebody with this much talent not have more success? But the thing was they were never bitter for themselves and they didn't want me to be bitter for them. There are people who have come to terms with the lives they actually live rather than the lives they had dreamt of having. And I feel like that's a moment that almost everybody has to come to terms with at some point, that we're probably not an astronaut or a president or a rock star. You know, most of us have a life that's maybe not as spectacular as we imagined, but that's okay. And as soon as you realize you can be okay with that, then then you can find happiness. And that's really what it's about. This film is also part of Film Forward. Can you tell us what Film Forward is and what its mission is? The program is done in conjunction between the NEA and the Sundance Institute, I believe. And the idea is to take a handful of films, both scripted and documentary, and take them to underserved communities, both internationally and domestically, and kind of show what what's happening in film, but also helping people understand our culture through our art and getting back to the idea that culture matters. You know, this is cultural diplomacy in a way, and it's just a way of humanizing who we all are to make these kind of connections on a cultural level. And uh, I think it's a great program. And we're just starting right now. So I actually haven't taken my first trip yet. Where are you going? I think Bosnia is the first trip I'm taking. And I'm looking forward to uh, to Bosnia and the, there are a number of other kind of far-flung places we're going to take take the film. And just tell me a little bit about the projects you're working on now. The two documentaries I'm kind of midstream on, one is about the rivalry and the debates between William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal. Uh-huh. And they had a series of televised debates in 1968 that to me were really kind of at a, a pivotal moment, of course, in American history, but really in media history. I mean, it changed how networks cover conventions. It's changed how pundits worked in conjunction with TV news. And it says a lot about the changing nature of the public intellectual and about what TV does to democracy in our country, uh, which to me is a very current issue. 
but told through these two gargantuan figures who are always entertaining to watch and listen to. So that's been a project that I'm hoping to finish this year. And the other project is what I'm doing with Yo-Yo Ma about his Silk Road project, which he's been doing, which is kind of his main passion. I mean, again, talking about cultural diplomacy and the idea that culture matters. He has been taking musicians from around the world, vastly different backgrounds, musical, cultural backgrounds, and collaborating. And they have a touring ensemble and trying to build bridges culturally through music, but in a way that goes then far beyond music. And I'm kind of midstream on that. I'm actually going to shoot some more tomorrow. I'm flying off to go shoot some more. So that's been a great documentary project. And Yo-Yo's just the most charming human being I've ever met. So I'm happy to follow him with a camera. (laughs) Well, Morgan, thank you for giving me your time during what must be just an incredibly busy week for you. It's been the busiest week of my life, I'd say. It's been pretty crazy. And I do appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. Great talking to you. That was the Academy Award-winning director, Morgan Neville. We were talking about his film, 20 Feet from Stardom. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. The Artworks podcast is posted each Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, blues singer and 2013 National Heritage Fellow, Carol Fram. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.